0: So this morning we have two readings, one from Mark chapter 16, verse 1 to 8, and the second from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 to 20. They'll be in your leaflets, in your Bibles, and you can follow along on the screen. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, They were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb but when they looked up they saw that the stone which was very large had been rolled away as they entered the tomb they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed don't be alarmed he said you were looking for jesus the nazarene who was crucified he has risen he is not here See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now from 1 Corinthians. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep.
1: Okay, thanks very much Hannah, and uh, thanks for your welcome before as well. Uh, As Cameron said, my name is Geoffrey Lynn, I'm one of the staff down at Trinity City, uh, and it's my um, privilege to be able to talk about this passage on this topic with you this morning. Um, Can I ask you to take out this little yellow insert? Uh, It's got some notes that will help you follow along what I'm going to talk about. In particular, there's a bunch of other Bible passages I'm going to refer to, and you'll find it really useful to have that in front of you, so that you don't have to flick them up. And... um Excuse me. We're on this topic. Imagine a world where death wins. Um, in December last year, I went to a funeral uh, to support uh, a good friend of ours uh, whose mother-in-law had just passed away. Uh, her mother-in-law was 70 when she died, and um, she'd she'd had a wonderful life. Actually, she had uh, seen the world, had incredible experiences, travelling, uh, great success. Um, she hadn't suffered in her final days. And one of her last requests was that a memorial service, when it was held, would include a wake at Ayers House, which was her favourite place in the whole world. Uh, So we gathered together on a beautiful summer's day. And to be honest, actually, it was a a time where, of course, there is sadness, but it was less a time of mourning and more a time of celebration um, as we heard about this woman's life and all that she had been blessed with. Um, As I left, uh, she wasn't a Christian. As I left, I was torn by two different emotions. On the one hand, a deep thankfulness that I had gotten to hear something of this woman's story. Um, And uh, just for the blessings that she had received, and as I listened to what people said about her, the way in which she had enriched other people's lives. Uh, It was a great privilege to be present. Uh, On the other hand, uh, as I drove away, Uh, It seemed to me that all the platitudes that were said on the day about how she lives on in our memories uh, just didn't really seem like much comfort after all. Um, I understood why people said them, but I found myself thinking, that's not really enough. Um, Imagine a world where death wins. If it did... I take it that what we would do is we would try to do as this woman did. You'd try to make the most of life. And if you're fortunate enough to do so, you'd be deeply thankful for it. Uh, my problem is, is that I'm greedy. And I just want more than that. Uh, in preparing the talk this week, uh, at relatively um, short notice to step in, uh, I figured I had a couple of options as to how I could do it. Let me tell you what, my, what the possibilities were. Option one was... Um, I could spend our time this morning trying to demonstrate uh, all the limitations of a world where death does win. Um, Try and give voice or articulate what I think for all of us we long for. That is, we long for something more than that, for something even better. So here's what I'd do. I'd talk about um, the fact that if we're no more than just a bunch of atoms that have agreed to hang out together for 60 or 70 or 80 years, that it would be very hard for us to talk in any meaningful way about purpose. Uh, What I'd do is I'd remind us that if death wins, then ultimately what that's going to give uh, give rise to is universal selfishness. That is, as each one of us tries our very best to seize the day, suck the marrow out of life, make the most of this one life that we have. Uh, If our world was one where death wins, what I'd do is I'd, I'd... inundate us with the despair that we all feel when we look around and we realise that on planet Earth, some people are born with everything and most have nothing. And despite our best efforts, history confirms that, really, we can't change the status quo. Some people will get every opportunity in this world while billions live in abject poverty, just trying to survive day to day. And what I'd do is that I would try and give voice to the outrage that we feel when death enables some people to avoid facing their crimes. You think just of the week gone by and what's taken place in Brussels, and the outrage that all of us feels that some people, it seems, manage to get away with it. So that's one way in which I could handle the talk, Uh, but that's pretty bleak and, uh, you know, it's, I mean, I thought it was going to be a lovely day, but I drove up to the hills yet again, and it was raining. Um, it's Easter Sunday, right? Resurrection Sunday. So instead of being quite so dour and negative, what I thought I'd do is I'd ask a specific question about Jesus and death. Imagine a world where death defeats Jesus. Uh, or, as I put it on your handout there, point one, what if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The first reading that Hannah brought to us um, from Mark chapter 16 finishes on what we today would call a cliffhanger, you know, kind of like the end of a, se- of a season of a TV show. It's a cliffhanger with a bunch of women who've gone to the grave where Jesus is and they've discovered the tomb's empty and they've been told that he's been alive and that they're going to go share the news with other people, but we don't know what they do. What did they do? they go and tell the other disciples? Or maybe did they keep quiet because they thought if they go and start telling people that Jesus is alive, everyone will just assume that they've gone a little bit crazy. What if Jesus didn't rise at all is the question for this morning. Now, of course, for us today, most Australians would say that if Jesus didn't rise at all, the worst thing that would happen would be that we'd lose a great four-day long weekend. Uh, Or alternatively, you might say that if Jesus didn't rise, then it would save us a few trips to the gym to work off Easter chocolate weight. Uh, I read that a couple of years ago, in 2014, Australians spent $200 million uh, on chocolate at Easter, which, given that some of us, like me, don't actually like chocolate, that's just one of those oddities. I know Beck's outraged that anyone could not like chocolate, but that's me. That means that Beck probably ate my share. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, someone ate my share. So that's a lot of chocolate. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 suggests three implications if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, which you might be surprised to hear is one of the questions that the Bible addresses. Uh, And I printed them there for you. Um, This is from that second reading that Hannah brought to us. Let me just run through each of them in turn. Implication one, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christians have been sold and are selling a lie. Have a look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14, which I've printed on the handout for you. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. The Apostle Paul is saying that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your faith is useless. It's useless because you've been sold a lie about Jesus, about who he is and what he claims to have done. There's three things in particular that the Bible picks up, and I printed each of them there for you. Uh, Firstly, it means that Jesus himself is a liar. Look at what Jesus said back in Mark chapter 8. He began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus himself said that he would die and rise, so if he didn't, Jesus is a lie. You can't trust anything that he has to say. Secondly, Jesus is not the Son of God if he were not raised from the dead. Uh, This here, the passage I printed for you, is from Romans chapter 1. This is another of Paul's letters, writing to the church in Rome. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son... Who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, but who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, what demonstrates that Jesus is the Son of God? It's the fact that God raised him from the dead. So if he didn't, Jesus is not who he claims to be. And that means that if he's not the Son of God, then he's no different from any of the other slightly crazy doomsday prophets who appear from time to time talking about the end of the world. Uh, They come with all sorts of promise, but they never deliver. And the third way in which your faith is useless if Jesus has not been raised from the dead is that he is not our judge. Uh, This here, uh, the passage at the bottom of the handout, this is taken from one of Paul's sermons. Uh, Here's what he says in Acts chapter 17. He says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all people by raising him from the dead. Paul says that the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead marks him out to be the judge of all the earth. So if he didn't rise, then he is not your judge. And that means you won't have to stand before him in his court your whole life laid bare for all to see, try to explain why you lived your life for yourself, not for him who claimed that he gave his life to take away your sins. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your faith is useless, but moreover, Paul actually says there, uh, your Our preaching is useless. And in fact, the words that he used were, in verse 15, we are found to be false witnesses about God. That is, Christians who say Jesus has been raised from the dead, they are selling a lie. Now, to emphasize how serious this is, that is, to be a false witness about God, if I get cranky when people misquote me, and I do, can you imagine how God feels? if we misrepresent his one and only son. Uh, Maybe maybe try asking one of the parents here how they react if people say untruths about their children. Okay, there's the first implication. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christians have been sold and are selling a lie. Second implication, flip over the page on the reverse side of the handout. Our sins have not been forgiven. Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our sins have not been forgiven. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. What Paul is saying here is that Easter is a package deal. Easter is not a series of options where you get to choose the bits that you want and discard the rest. It's all or nothing. Friday is only good because of Sunday. Because unless Jesus has been raised from the dead, he cannot take away sins. Now, why is that? Well, there's a couple of ways of answering that. Uh, The first is, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then his sacrifice of his life is no better than any you or I might make. If he hasn't been raised from the dead, his sacrifice is no better than any you or I might make. Let me try and illustrate this. If I were to stand here today and offer, say to you that I was going to give up my life to take away the sins of the whole world, you'd probably say, gee, that Jeff has really lost it now. That is, you might admire my intentions. That sounds like a noble thing to do but you're unlikely to take me particularly seriously. Because actually, you know that my life is no different from yours. It is no better than yours. It is no more valuable than yours. That's the point of Romans 1. Paul is saying that by raising Jesus from the dead, God confirms that He is the Son of God. And therefore, he has the ability to take away the sins of the whole world in the way in which you and I cannot. Here's a different way of putting it, second way to explain why Jesus must be raised from the dead to take away our sins. Um, Because if he didn't, if he's not alive, we have no priest who can speak on our behalf before God. And that's the point of the Hebrews passage, which I printed there near the top of the handout, Hebrews chapter 7. Here the writer says, There have been many of those earthly priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. You hear what the writer is saying? He's saying that there's been a whole bunch of earthly priests. He's referring particularly to the Old Testament. An earthly priest, he'd serve his life, he'd serve his ministry, he'd die and he'd be replaced by another one. But he's saying that if Jesus has been raised from the dead, he can't die, therefore he is a permanent priesthood, permanent priest, therefore he is always before God to speak on our behalf. You see, if Jesus doesn't speak on our behalf, then when we do come into God's presence, if we don't have someone to vouch for us, we'll be utterly consumed by God's power. And that's not because God is, anyway particularly maliciously um, particularly capricious or malevolent or just, you know, want to fly off the handle. That's because God is so perfectly pure and holy and righteous. And you and I, by comparison, we are not. We have no place in God's presence. We have no right to be before God. We cannot last unless Jesus stands for us and intercedes for us. So, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christians have been sold and are selling a lie. Our sins have not been forgiven. Third implication, we are without hope. We are without hope. And so here, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 18 and 19, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Uh, If if Jesus didn't rise, then Christians are not just liars about God with unforgiving sins. Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. Uh, Paul is saying, Christians are pathetic. And the reason for that, of course, is because we have based our lives on the hope of something better that can never be realised. Christians are living for a mirage or an illusion if Jesus did not rise from the dead. You see, Jesus didn't rise, and if death wins, then not only have we lost our future, we're actually wasting our present. Which, according to Paul, makes us deserving not of condemnation, it makes us deserving of pity. And I wonder, is that not the worst judgment that you can pass on someone else? If you're here today as someone who's not a Christian, um, as Cameron said before, uh, I know that this church is delighted that you're here. In fact, that's the reason, one of the reasons why they gather each week is that people might have a chance to come and meet other Christians and see how they live their lives. Uh, if you're someone who's convinced that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, can I please encourage you? Don't just say to your Christian friend, your Christian family member who thinks that Jesus did rise from the dead, don't just say, oh, look, let's just agree to disagree. Can I actually encourage you to show your compassion for them by not letting them just waste their lives? Uh, To the Christians here, well, they're coming for you now. Um, No, no, as in, I say this because Jesus' resurrection is so significant that it's not something that you can just say, ah, you know what, you think what you think, I'll think what I think, and we'll leave it at that. It changes everything. Okay, point two, but Jesus did rise from the dead. Okay, I've been asking the question, what would happen if he didn't? Mark 16 makes it very clear that he did. So Mark 16, of course, that story again that Hannah read to us. We're at the first Easter Sunday. The women have gone to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body for burial. So if nothing else, it's pretty clear they think Jesus is dead. They think that death wins. When they get there, a young man gives them the good news. Mark chapter 16, verse 6. Don't be alarmed, he said. Well, <laughs> No kidding, of course they're going to be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. Well, yes, they know that. They're here to anoint his body for burial. Instead, they're told, he has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him, just as he told you. Jesus was crucified. But now they're told, he has risen. Death has not won. And if they go into Galilee, which is actually where it all began, they'll see him there, raised back to life again. If you look, I've printed there for you from Mark chapter 1. This is the very beginning of the account. uh, When we first meet Jesus, Uh, he goes into Galilee, verse 14, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, as I said, Mark 16 finishes on a cliffhanger. We're not told what those women did. But history records that they didn't keep silent. They went and told the other disciples. And those disciples told others. And those people told still more. And the good news has been passed on from generation to generation for 2,000 years until it's come all the way down to us today. Because it's news that is in every sense too good to keep to yourself. Jesus is alive. The kingdom of God has come near. Death has not won. So repent and believe the good news. It might interest you to know that before uh, the Apostle Paul became a Christian, before he actually met the risen Jesus, uh, what he did was that he would go around imprisoning Christians and actually executing them for claiming that Jesus was alive. By contrast, after he meets Jesus, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, last time in the passage, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits, Of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, unlike many, no doubt, in this congregation, I'm not a gardener. Uh, I care not at all for such things. Uh, But even I know, with my limited knowledge of gardening, that when the first mandarin appears on our mandarin tree, I know that there are a lot more coming. So too with Jesus' resurrection. He is the first fruits, which means that having been raised from the dead, death has no power over him and it has no power over his followers either. So, point three, then, let me wrap it up. Jesus died on Good Friday, he rose on Easter Sunday. If you're new to Christianity or if you're just trying to work out who this Jesus is for the first time, you'd be well excused for wondering, okay, if he's alive, where is he now? Where is Jesus now? What the rest of the New Testament goes on to describe is how 40 days after rising from the dead, Jesus ascended into heaven. And now he's seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And one day he will return to judge the living and the dead and to gather his followers home. Well, so what? So what for me? Um, I thought I'd make a confession today. Um, Here's my confession. I actually find it pretty easy to imagine a world where death wins. That's for two reasons. The first is because I see death every day. And I see the effects of death every day. And I've never met anyone in the flesh who has defeated death themselves. Sometimes people cheat death, but it's only for a short while. So I actually find it pretty easy to imagine a world where death wins because that's what it looks like. Here's the second reason why. It's because I find it almost impossible to imagine what life after death would be like. I read the Bible, it says things, but the things that it describes, they are so utterly removed from my present experience, my present reality, that sometimes I find myself wondering if it's all true. Just last, uh, last Sunday, I caught up with a couple of guys uh, from Adelaide University, so I spend most of my time working with university students. Uh, these are guys uh, in their senior years who have befriended some of the Christians in the Christian group that I work with. And they've been asking them a whole bunch of questions, and we got together to try and answer some of their questions. And at one point, one of the guys said to me, Okay, so if Christians believe in life after death, believe in heaven, what's heaven like? And I kind of took a deep breath and thought, How am I going to explain to him what it means to be with Jesus and how wonderful that is when nothing in this world can possibly even relate or come close? In fact, as I found myself explaining it, it was almost like one of those out-of-body experiences. You know, I sort of imagined I was listening to me saying and thinking, wow, this guy must think I'm totally fruity. I do find it hard to imagine what it would be like to be with Jesus. Probably because I do find it easy to imagine a world where death wins. Because in the end, as Christians, we live by faith, not by sight. And as someone who trusts my own eyes, I find that very hard. The thing is, Jesus did rise from the dead. So death has already been defeated. And though he's gone away for a while... That means that the ultimate question for me is not, how do I deal with my doubts? The ultimate question is, am I ready for when Jesus returns? I thought I'd finish by telling you a story. Actually, it's not my story, it's Jesus' story, so you really should pay attention. Jesus told a story about a wealthy businessman who decided to go away on a business trip. And before he did, he called together his employees. The word he uses is servants, so we'll use that. He calls together his servants. And he entrusts them all of his stuff. He says, look after it while I'm gone. He goes away. When he returns, he summons each of them before him to give an account for the way in which they have looked after his things. To the first servant who comes forward, whom the master had given five bags of gold, the first servant comes out and says, "Said the five bags of gold you gave me? I've worked really hard and I've turned it into ten. To which the master says, well done, come and share in my happiness. Now, we're not told what it means to come and share in his happiness. I take it he means more than just, here's a nice end of year bonus for you. It sounds pretty extravagant, doesn't it? The master now saying to the servant, you've done well, come and enjoy everything that I have. The second servant comes forward. He was given two bags of gold, and he's turned his two into four, to which, interestingly, Jesus says exactly the same thing. Come and share in my happiness. Which I presume, one of the points is that, therefore, that the master gives different things to different people based on their abilities, but he's still looking for the same response, that they might be faithful with what they've been given. The third servant who was given one bag of gold, he comes out and he says, actually, I was so afraid of screwing up that I just went and hid your one bag of gold away. Now you can have it back. And at that point, the master rightly condemns him and he loses everything. Now, Jesus is not very subtle in his stories, but just in case you've missed the point, Jesus is the master, and we are like those servants. In fact, we are all like one of those servants. We're either like the first two servants, you know, the ones who've used everything that God has given them in his service, the servants who've used their abilities, their talents, their gifts their hearts, their soul, their mind, their strength. They've used everything for God and for his glory. And so they are rightly looking forward to the reward that will come. We're either like those first two servants or we're like the third servant. This is the one who's also been given much, but has been paralysed by an almost irrational fear of the master. I say it's irrational because clearly the master loves to reward his servants. But their fear has paralysed them. So they've done nothing. And therefore they'll have nothing to show for it all. Here's the question for you today on this Easter long weekend. Are you ready for Jesus to return? Let me finish by praying. Heavenly Father, we praise you for everything good that you've filled our lives with, uh, for such a wonderful place to live, for such abundance of possessions and experience. But above all, we thank you for the gift of your Son, whose death alone can take away our sins. So we pray, give us courage and strength and wisdom and persistence and all that we need that we might be ready for when your son returns. Amen.